25 years before Me Too, when many were arguing that the need for feminism was apparently over, that Virginia Trioli wrote Generation F. In that book, she mounts a passionate, probing, and I believe entirely convincing argument that there was a long way to go before structural discrimination and sexual harassment were eradicated in Australia. Now, in Generation F2, Virginia has revisited that book to show how much, or perhaps how little, has actually changed in that time. And she'll be joining me in conversation tonight. Please put your hands together for Virginia Virginia, I want to ask you to set the scene mm. when you were first writing this book the first time around. So take us back, apart from the rollerblades and the neon and the black grungy eyeshadow, what was going on in the 90s and what prompted you to think about these topics? Well, there was some very good music in the 90s. I'm sure you can all rediscover on Spotify if you weren't there the first time around. But there was a matter that came to the courts that was reported on by a colleague of mine at the Age newspaper. And uh, that was uh, Simon Mann, who reported on police laying charges against two charges of um, indecent assault against the then Master of Ormond College, which is up here at the University of Melbourne, following complaints by two women to the police. Now, three women had actually gone to the Council of Ormond College about five or six months before and had made complaints about the then Master, Dr. Alan Gregory, following uh, an evening at the college, a dance event in the junior common room of the college. And these three women went to the council saying that the master had harassed them, or in a couple of cases, assaulted them. And this is our first problem. And anyone who's had any experience with harassment or with an incident at work that you wanted your workplace to take seriously or that you considered taking on and taking seriously, you'll well understand this moment because the college failed in every respect. They freaked. Took ages for them to get to the complaints when they finally did. They convened an internal council and the women were interviewed and others were as well. But the women uh, recounted when they were interviewed, it was basically a cross-examination and it was if they were believed. Then the council went away to consider and weeks and weeks and weeks later, they finally came up with their decision where they were sure the women had acted in good faith in coming with their complaints, but they were standing by the Master of Ormond College and backing him in the role that he did there, and they believed in him and they had faith in him. The women found this out. This is another. There are many, many examples of how uh, aspects to the story and how badly that whole process went. And it's a classic case of institutional failure. But one great moment for you to know is that the women found out about the end of this process, about doing the incredible thing of, of going to the, the head of the college and complaining about the master of Ormond College, the man who ran the show, saying he assaulted me, he harassed me. They found out by tripping into dinner one night into the dining hall and finding a notice stuck to the court board that said, master had been cleared. And that's how they discovered it. Sometime later they went to the police, two of them, not the three, two, went to the police and made a complaint. The police looked at it, the DPP looked at it, and the police laid those two charges of indecent assault. One was dismissed, 
pretty early on. The other one was found proven, but then later on it was overturned on appeal. Now, the judge in the appeal said he did not disbelieve the woman, the second woman in the second instance, and he thought that she was an excellent witness. But on balance, he had to find in favour of Dr. Alan Gregory because of his previously unblemished record. The women never identified themselves. They never have. Many of us, myself included, uh, over several months and uh, several attempts have tried to speak to them and get them to tell their story, and they never have. They just disappeared off into their lives. And um, there's one in the room here tonight who knows very well that the upper echelons of the legal circles in this city, and they were law students, um, formed a very close circle and said, they'll never get work in this town. And as far as I know, they haven't. Uh, one of them went to Sydney, and I, 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 she may have um, gone off overseas after that as well. I'm frankly not sure, because she resists all my entreaties to speak as well. And I think her silence is absolutely eloquent. Sometime after that, then, um, Helen Garner, I learned about the story. Um, our revered and loved and celebrated author of this city, and indeed this suburb, this place. Uh, she read that item in the newspaper, and she was outraged. She couldn't believe that her feminism, the philosophy and the approach that gave her the words to say it and the words to understand why she was here in this world and to define her own choosing and to make her own path, that her feminism had turned into this priggish, pitiless, punishing thing that women could fall apart at the allegation of a, a touch on the breast, a touch on the arse. What is wrong with you people? Can't you just stand up for yourselves? Use your innate female strength, your innate sexual power in order to deal with a situation like that. She wondered why their youth and beauty was not enough to protect them in that situation. She wrote a letter to Dr. Ellen Gregory saying she was appalled at the actions that the women had taken and apologising really for this thing that feminism had seemed to become in the hands of a younger generation. And then she said about some time later writing the first time, which was and remains um, a celebrated bestseller in this country. And then I read the first time. And um, do you remember how you felt after that first reading? Well, if I brought my copy of the first one, you would see the dings and knocks from where I hurled across the room <laughs> several times. I'd get a few pages and have to hurl it again and get a few pages and have to put it down and walk away. Because I, like she couldn't believe what these young women had done. I could not believe that she didn't understand that her generation of feminists had worked so hard to put in place a whole series of laws covering sexual harassment and sexual assault that enabled us to use them when we felt we had the right to do so. We had to turn our faces to the full force of the law in order to do that. You had to stand up in open court, you had to go to police and make your complaint, and then stand up in open court and be cross-examined. It was and is not an easy thing. But if we really believe that that's what had happened to us, then we had the right to be tested in court and by law and to accept the outcome. And these women, it seemed to me, did just that. And I couldn't believe her anger at us. And I, and I couldn't believe the way she was representing us. And, and I say in, the, um, in this book, I say it, was, it felt like being chewed out by an angry and disappointed mother. And 
my, my circle, my friends, my peers, we kept coming together and together and together talking about this book, talking about the furore that her, the publication of her book kicked off. And it was like sisters sort of coming together to console each other after being yelled at by mum. Can you give um, the room a sense for those who perhaps don't remember of what the media coverage of that case oh, yeah. and that book was like at the time? Because it was all consumed. <laughs> the media coverage of the case initially was not huge. It was really confined to Melbourne and it was reasonably low-key. Um, it was shocking to those who read it because no one had ever really taken on a member of the establishment before. And we are, I'm sure everyone in this room will know, we are talking about the establishment. Ormond College, Queen's College, the other colleges up there around College Crescent in Parkville, just behind us here at the University of Melbourne, that, that is where you went to make sure that you had a future. And if you got into that school back then, if you got into those colleges, there was a pathway for you to be successful and you made connections that we'd never want to break. So it, it was very significant in those terms. But where the media fuel really kicked off was with the publication of that book. Because everyone took sides. Everyone took a side on this, and I, looking back now, I now see this instance of division and anger and side-taking over the Ormond College matter as really our first big um, foray into cultural wars, so-called. We've had many of them, many of them since, and we'll probably have many more into the future, lucky us. But, um, but that was kind of the first great cultural war, I think. Everyone took sides. The sides weren't necessarily chosen along uh, generational lines, although largely, but you know, with variations in the middle, there were older women who couldn't understand Helen Garner's point, and uh, there were younger women who were totally with Helen and vice versa. But it was a, a huge media sensation, sold a lot of books, and, um, and the, the commentary pages, and back then, this is, um, my dear friends, this is pre-social media. <laughs> In the dark age. In the dark age. <laughs> Twitter. We had email. We did have email. Um, but before anything else, and so the majority of the um, arguments and discussions and conversations were carried in the heavy freight of the commentary pages, of the major broadsheets, uh, on the airwaves, yes, and, uh, <laughs> and in, in publications that then followed after that, essays and responses, um, other minor books and the like. And, and it, it rolled on and on. It was absolutely sensational. At the time, there was this discussion of... Uh, the same point kept coming up, that feminism had gone, and I'm trying to use quotation marks, with a microphone, too far. You've got to say, you've got to say gone too far. G-O-R-N. <laughs> Cass Cook coined that phrase, gone too far. It's just gone too far. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do it. <laughs> Feminism had <laughs> too far. But it's the same claim we hear a lot now about the Me Too movement. Absolutely. We're 25 years on, yeah. and this going too far, where's the line kind of conversation starts to come up again. Is this about saying that there are limits on women's equality, that you never get the full way there, that there's somewhere we stop short and we're fighting about where we stop short for? Yes, and I think everything is about it. Everything is another movement down the beach and the establishment of a new beachhead, whether it be the establishment of sexual harassment laws, but then uh, achieving a new beachhead of using the sexual harassment laws, and then the new beachhead of not being punished for using the sexual harassment laws. And we'll get to the inadequacy of those laws later on in our conversation, I'm sure. But, but yes, 
I think every, every new foray is a, potentially a threat, and you can always frame the discussion that way. But the language that was used at the time is familiar and old and worn out, but at the same time still used. Uh, there were uh, well-known radio broadcasters who were railing about those feminist bitches who ruined a man and dragged him down. There was another well-known broadcaster at the time who likened the honour college matter to the Salem witch trials. And that's, cast your mind back just a few months, that's exactly the kind of language we were hearing, as we were hearing from women in America, when they were starting to hashtag their experiences, me too, uh, when we heard from all of that, that long conga line of actresses making allegations about Harvey Weinstein, it's the same, exactly the same language. And the fear always seems to be focused on what if one good man goes down rather than look at all these women yes. who've been hurt along the way and have gone about their business in silence. That's a really interesting observation. And uh, there's a, a journalist and a writer, Rebecca Traster, who I quote in the book and who makes that observation. Um, it's really funny working my glasses and I'm reading it out, but I'll paraphrase. And she said, we, we crane our necks to look over the, 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 the wreckage of uh, a man's career in order to, to find some ambiguity there in his story. You know, but, you know, he's a nice guy. He did a lot of great things. He didn't do it to me. He didn't do it to her. But in that craning our neck to, to try and find that moment of ambiguity to, to um, allow us to recognise the humanity in that man, we overlook the damage done to the woman who's actually had to, well, endure it have the consequences of it, and then take the very dangerous step. And it is still a dangerous step to speak out and report it. And I think that was a really great observation of hers. She's, she's written a book in the aftermath of the Me Too movement as well, and it's, it's one that I would um, recommend to you. It, it's almost like we have this dichotomy situation that a man has to be an absolute monster. Yes. Or he's good. Mm. It's one or the other, and we do. We go to that space at home, but his mother likes him. Yeah. And, and, it's, <laughs> well, it's, and, and of course, he is going to be, I'm sure, in many respects, a perfectly fine bloke and has done great things. Mm. Um, but it's the same ambiguity that we look for in that, you know, like either an absolute monster or has, can't possibly be true. That same ambiguity in a woman's story is actually the thing that brings her down. So, the ambiguity, for example, but, you know, she does drink a lot at office functions, or she said she liked the guy. She never complained at the time. But they went on and worked together for months after that, and she never said anything. She is a difficult woman. She can be a bit tricky. That ambiguity, which, you know, any lawyers in the room here this evening will know that that's what a cross-examiner can absolutely light upon to tear apart and shred the credibility of that woman. That's just the normal ambiguity of a person who lives a life and who has the kind of, you know, flawed and frayed personality and qualities that we all have and that we all share. But we don't, we're not as easy and quick to forgive that ambiguity in a woman as we are in a man. When you read this book, it's 25 years old, right? Yeah. So it's, it, it is a generation old, technically. Thank it's you. 25 years, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, and yet it reads like something, even the parts that were written back then, reads like something contemporary. And there's something quite terrifying about that. I want to drill into the workplace, the legal, and a couple of other elements in a moment. But first I wanted to ask, why do you think it is that progress 
has just been so slow that we can pick up a book like yours and 25 years later it feels like it could have been written last week? I think something of it has to do with the, um, the landmines that I think were unwittingly buried within the well-meaning legislation that is ours to inherit now and use around sexual harassment. I say well-meaning most genuinely. And this was um, written and drafted and introduced by wonderful people, including Senator Susan Ryan and many others who went on to, to make modifications um, afterwards. But I think that the, the, the landmines in the legislation, and in this book really, it's a challenge to the next generation of Generation Fs who want to, to do the law reform, to, to fix it up, or indeed the workplace reform, or the attitudinal reform that gets us to a better and safer place where we can just work happily together and get on with our jobs, um, free from being bothered. And those land, the landmine is that and I have in the audience this evening Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins, who I'd like to acknowledge and thank her for turning up. I can't see you, Kate. Where are you? She's over there. Thank you for being here. Um, as Kate points out, and I quote her in the afterword that I've written to this new edition, the way the legislation is framed and the way that the workplaces have written their policies responding to the legislation is that if you make a complaint, the response is either nothing or it's nuclear. Either it's duck and cover, don't do anything about it, and oh my God, this opens up a liability, you know, wormhole for us, we'll never get out of it alive, or it blows up. And it blows up for everyone. It's shit for the person who makes the complaint, it's shit for the person who is complained against. And invariably, um, if not both of them, often, both of them will end up leaving that workplace but invariably the complainer will end up leaving, no question. There's, there's simply no safe place that's being created in response to this legislation that allows people to humanly come together and sort out their differences, which to me is really distressing. Because if there's one thing that I believe in, I believe in our capabilities and our abilities to negotiate and sort out anything. It's what I know frustrates us probably most of all about the issues that confront us right now with uh, coming together as a, as a globe to work on climate change or on poverty. Uh, we know that when you work in a group of two or three or four or ten smart and enlightened people, there's so much we can do. I, I, I fundamentally believe in the humanity of people, even in that fraught workplace. And the fact that people want to get along, as Kate Jenkins says, she's always amazed and she phrases it and says, it's so Australian, because after, you know, years and years of analysing this and, and, and confronting these harassment issues head on. It's so Australian, she says, people actually just want to get along with each other. And they'll say, well, I know him, I like him, I should like him. I know his wife, she's gorgeous, I know his family. I know he totally doesn't get this, and he might not ever get this, but I, I don't want this to blow up and I don't want his life to be over either. So I think that's one of the reasons why things don't move on. The other gets us to a much more troubling question of the persistence of misogyny and sexism. And I think that's still largely there. I've been kind of bowled over. There's a, there's a hard little nut of that still in the um, divine, enormous audience that John Fang has left me in, uh, me having the incredible opportunity of taking over from him on mornings on ABC Radio Melbourne. And it's just, an, you know, it's such a privilege and a huge audience. But there's this 
hard nut of sexism at the centre of it that really, really hates being spoken to by a woman. And the moment I'm there presenting and I've got a female guest, the text messages roll in and they say, this show's turned into the woman's hour. I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't want to think John Train was going to go and I was going to end up with the woman's hour. And in they come. And, it was, and on the first couple of days, these are rolling into my shock. And uh, one of my producers came in and said to me, I just want you to know, uh, I am not programming this show any differently than how I would when John was here. There is no difference. In fact, the guests you're talking to were all lined up while John was still here. But because there's a woman presenting, and it's, it's still that old attitude, and that is still there. You can fight me all you like about it, but it's still there. Well, that's depressing. <laughs> I, I often hear people muddling through their descriptions of inappropriate behaviour, particularly in workplaces. Yeah. And it's almost like we still don't quite have the language to talk about this stuff. And it's men and women, but particularly women who've been wronged in some way have this sense of, well, how wrong was the wrongdoing yes. on this spectrum? Yeah. And when do I get to complain? When is it illegal? And when am I just feeling uncomfortable? And at what point do I get to say something? It's, it's part of the problem. We just don't have the definitions and the language to work in this space. Possibly, but I would have thought that we do because uh, it's very interesting to look at research from America, and in particular, uh, a study that was done um, by Wisconsin University and a, a number of behavioral psychologists there. And this uh, particular bit of research was published in the Harvard Business Review. We all know, we're all being drilled and drilled about sexual harassment. Um, that, that's not the problem, we know that. But I do think that sometimes we lose sight of the fact that at, at its essence and at its most simple, sexual harassment is uninvited, unwanted attention of a sexual nature, which means if you want it, you'll never get it, you'll never be harassed. You have to not want it. Which is why you can slip your arm, arm around me, give me a quick kiss on the cheek and say hi, and I'm delighted. But if you do that to me, it's a problem because I don't know you and I didn't want to and we haven't a relationship and how can you? But it's, it, so it, it only exists, you know, as and where it happens. And yeah, that's tricky for people in the workplace, I get that. So that's why the basic rule is keep your hands to yourself in the workplace and everything will be fine. You know? It's not you. <laughs> An extra book for him, please. <laughs> Thank you. Just to make up for that. Um, so yeah, it's it's uninvited, unwanted. So if you want it, you're not going to get harassment. That's that ain't harassment, and that's that's a that's a pretty simple rule. But to your broader point, yes, of course, we go over and over and over in our head. What did I do to bring it on? Was I behaving in the wrong? I was in the wrong place, wasn't I? I shouldn't have stayed that. It's true. Have I been giving him or her? looks or messages, and we do that. That's, that again is the very, you know, frail, common humanity that we share. Everyone in this room has, has spooled through that series of thoughts at some point. Yeah. The, the original, the first generation of F starts with a story like that, along those lines, which if you like, I can, I can tell you. I was about to say, please, <laughs> can you talk, uh, we're comfortable, a little bit about your experience? Yeah. Because we've all got a story. We've all got a story, and more than one. And here is where 
I can introduce you to a, a key sort of bookend, if you like, to, to, this, to this edition. There are two bookends. One is that we forget more harassment than we remember. And I think that was the really amazing thing about the advent of Me Too and that whole movement. And I'm sure you had this experience too, where in reading these stories in the newspaper and magazines and hearing them, you suddenly went, oh God, that's right. That guy did that. Oh my God. You know, that's, that's, I didn't think, yes, it was, wasn't it? And I still see him and I say, hi, how are you? Good face, how are the kids? Asshole. <laughs> we forget more than we remember. And that's just a life lived in, you know, this body. As I say this, please understand that I absolutely recognise that harassment, that men are also harassed as well. The figures show that. Their harassment is, is, is slightly different if it's not just, you know, the direct sort of physical harassment from a man or a woman. But there's another kind of harassment they experience. But um, speaking from the perspective of a woman, but I completely acknowledge that too. But in that forgetting, more than we remember. What that means is there have been all of those incidents that clearly were harassment, but we somehow explained them away, thought they were our fault, or just wished like hell they hadn't happened. So I was um, at a time where I was, I guess I was thinking of um, re responding to Helen Garner's first stone, and it was all kicked off by, well, in the usual way, as our friends do. I was there at another lunch, yet again, with a friend of mine uh, who was an editor and banging on about this book. And I think she was just sick of her lunch has been spoiled by this. So she said, well, why don't you write something? And, um, and so I did. But I was um, working on the night desk at the Age newspaper. I was at the Age for almost a decade. And um, wonderful job, greatest jobs I'll you know, ever have. And I was on the night desk. I was working with the night editor there. Um, and I was... Then one night, and one of my colleagues was coming across from the um, picture room, the photo library, you know, to show me something for the paper. And you know when someone's approaching you and you just know in that moment, oh God, he's coming in for a hug. <laughs> There's just sort of nothing you can do. And he came here, I knew him, but not really well, you know, but I, I mean, not to be physical in any way. You know, he was, he was like you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And he comes up and he just envelops me in a huge bear hug and kind of picks me up off the ground and just crushes me to his chest. And I sort of push away and go, you know, hey, mate. And he goes, hey, we don't have to be like that. And pulls me back for a second one and pulls me right in. Big guy, crushes me right in, picks me up off my feet. No, no, no. And, um, and I kind of drop myself again, push myself away and go, you know, hey. And this time he's angry. He's angry and he's humiliated, the whole desk is watching. He's got face to recover here, I guess. And so he grabs me back for a third time and he crushes me right in, all up off the wall, all but sort of knuckling me on the top of the head, you know, three stooges style. And I, this time, push him away with all my force, you know, get off me. And there's that moment. I've yelled in the room, I've yelled in the, you know, the sanctum of the age editorial floor, get off me desk is looking, you know, everyone's looking. And he said, I was just trying to show you something for the paper. And I said in that, you know, that pinched, shrill little voice that, you know, you want to come back with your this, but you don't. <laughs> and I think I said something like, well, you don't have to pick me up in order to do that, do you? Anyway, 
appealed to me, I looked at him and I just scurried off. And my face scarlet and feeling like an idiot. And I finished my work and I went home. I had friends over for dinner. Uh, that was the Friday night and the Saturday night. And of course, I told them all about it. And we were endlessly banging on about it. And someone on the table said, you need to go to the boss and tell them about that. And someone else said, you have to confront him on Monday. And another person said, forget it. Just let it drop. You know, this will not end well for you. And the phone rang. This was back in the days of um, fixed landlines. I love how we're talking about ancient times. It's like it's really like, you know, really <laughs> my son asked what one was. Yeah. <laughs> fixed landline. And um, uh, he went to answer the phone. And he motioned for his call to stop and said, It's him. <laughs> and he, I went to the phone, I picked it up. And he spoke all in a rush. And he said, I'm so sorry, I'm okay, you. I can hear that you're busy. I just wanted to ring and say, I am so sorry for what I did on Friday night. It was out of line, it was unacceptable. It's what I do to a bloke as well as a woman. I know that's no excuse, but you know, it wasn't because you're a woman, and I know it made you uncomfortable, and I'm just really, really sorry. And I said, It's forgotten. Thanks. And he said, You put it in a book 25 years later. <laughs> But that was exactly what the Ormond College women wanted. That's all anyone who was harassed ever wants. The, the, the critics and those who would hang us from a high petard for making the complaint or for going to the cops or for going to the bosses would, would have us believe that somehow we enjoy this and going through that process is pleasurable. Are you kidding me? All we want is an acknowledgement that it happened, an apology, and a promise that it won't happen again. And if the Ormond College women, for those long five, six months before they had enough and they went to the police, if they just got that, there wouldn't be Helen Garner's book, there wouldn't be my book. I don't know, would the, would the cause of harassment have been um, advanced any better? I, I can't say. But that is all that anyone really ever wants. I'm sure there are cases where you'll, get, you'll strike someone who's angry for another reason, or who has a different agenda, and who drives on their complaint in a slightly different way. But the majority, the clear majority, it's all they want. It feels like an awfully common story. I um, have a woman in my life who's very close to me who experienced some pretty severe sexual harassment from a boss at work a few years ago. And after mulling it over for a few days, she decided she wanted to do something about it. She wrote to HR and <coughs> they kind of dismissed it. HR. Here, uh, here is where I'll jump in and give you another little important um, leitmotif from the book. HR is not your friend. I'm sorry, but HR is not your friend. And maybe you'll have a workplace where it is, and if you do, well, bless you, and that's fantastic, and work there for the rest of your lives. <laughs> But um, as um, a, a senior and credentialed employment lawyer tells me in the book and tells conferences that he attends over and over, HR's not your friend. Go on. HR works for the company, right? Or works for the organisation you work for. She decided she wanted to do something about it nonetheless. And when they wouldn't believe her, um, they said, we've put it to him and he says, that's not true, that didn't happen. She ended up seeking legal assistance. Mm. And over the next six to nine months, I think she spent close to $30,000. Oh, 
with all of her girlfriends pitching in to give her a hand to get through it, and in the end settled the case out of court just for her costs. And she spoke for several years about how she failed. And the language really struck me, and it's something I see again and again amongst women I know, that even when they know an injustice has been done, that shame seems to perpetuate, even when you're standing up for yourself. Is there, is there any way we can start to undo that culture of shame to allow ourselves to stand up for ourselves better? Because it feels like a chicken and egg scenario in that the shame is caused by a system that's unfair, but the system's not going to change until we can let go of that shame for something that's not our fault. It's, it's, it's a really good question. I don't think the systems are going to be there to help us at the moment for that. Although what I see has materially changed with the advent of Me Too is that these stories now have to be heard and they can't be ignored. And what it means when these women come forward, and I think this is a great example, when um, E. Jean Carroll, the American journalist who made the accusation and claim of rape against President Donald Trump came forward after keeping that secret for a long time. What that started to reveal and show and allow us to share with them was that we all actually had that common shared experience. I think that makes it increasingly harder and harder to ignore. Because simply from a, a data set perspective, if you've got you know, this half of the room, you can, you can easily work out from the data that you're talking about 75% at least have had that experience. And so therefore we have that common shared experience and it just makes it harder to ignore. I think that's going to be part of it, but I think the other key part of it is changing changing our role as um, secret keepers, because we keep men's secrets. And that's the other key um, leitmotif and bookend of this book, is that we keep men's secrets. You hold them and you don't tell them. I mean, I tell these stories in, in this book, and as I was writing them, and there's other stories you know, since that I've experienced, we've all had them that I share in the book, and I'm writing them down and I'm working so hard to de-identify the men. And then I call my lawyer and he says it's fine and I get it back, but I say, yeah, look, I'm just going to change, I'm going to change a couple of things anyway, just in case. I'm still keeping their secrets. I'm still keeping it. Why am I doing that? I mean, and, and, until we change that, I actually think that's going to be the fundamental change. It's about finding your voice and, and using it. Caitlin Raper was the ABC journalist, and you mentioned her in a piece you wrote. Ashley, Ashley Raper, yes. Why did I say Caitlin? Ashley. And she said in the piece that you were quoting her in that a lot of women were being brave, but I wasn't. Yeah. Which was such a reflection on herself that somehow she'd done That's something right. wrong. And now, of course, she didn't even make any public accusations about the then New South Wales op opposition leader. Other people outed her um, experience for their own purposes. Does that tell us that women are damned if they report and damned if they don't? The, the Ashley Raper case is a really interesting one. You, you may not know because of course it was New South Wales and we're here, so I'll just briefly summarise it for you. Um, but Ashley Raper is an ABC political journalist in New South Wales and Sydney and she attended a function 
where the then opposition leader Luke Foley attended. And she says, she was wearing a, um, a cocktail dress and had a reasonably low back, and he came up behind her and he slipped his hands, she says, down inside her dress and inside her underpants and rested them on her buttocks. And she just froze. <laughs> you, you'll know from your own experiences, you know, people will say to you, why didn't you just knock his hand away and blah, blah, blah. You don't really turn around and maybe you can. If you are brave and you can, fabulous, do it. But not all of us turn around and knock away the hand of the leader of the opposition with a room full of journalists watching. And so she, um, she went away and she said nothing about it. It was um, seen and she swore those journalists to secrecy. But then that story was told under parliamentary privilege by Luke Foley's political enemies in federal parliament in order to get him. He's a harasser. And so it came out. Um, Luke Foley denied it, but he rang Ashley Rayho to apologise as well. Then the matter was published and she, she released a statement saying this is what happened to me. He threatened to sue her, but then he dropped the suit. And he also stood down as opposition leader. And yes, in an interview with me for the book, she said, I kept this secret, I wasn't telling anyone. She said, I knew it would just end in shit for me if this went public. But all these stories are coming out, the Me Too stories are coming out, and all these women were being brave, and I wasn't being brave. But then let's, let's um, line that up with what she was being told as well at home. And she, I think this brings us right back to that generational battle that we see outlined in The First Stone and in the response to the Ormond College case and, and in my original book as well. Her mother, she said, you know, a very progressive, um, very enlightened woman, said to her daughter, you should have just punched him on the nose. Okay, I wish it was that easy. Um, but he didn't deserve to lose his job. And again, again, craning our necks over the wreckage to try and find the ambiguity and to save the man from himself. Mm. And putting it back on us, we've got to punch him on the nose. You know, Jamila, maybe we just do need to do more punching on the nose. We have a number <laughs> of lawyers in the room tonight. You need to figure out a way that we can come up with a, 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 you know, a reasonable defence. But it's interesting, in, in the original text I quote, um, Sally Brown, uh, who was uh, a judge for many years here in Victoria, and she reminded me of the fact that men who had been charged with uh, manslaughter when they had responded physically to a homosexual pass from another man said, yes, but he tried to touch my house. You know, he was all over me. I punched him. This is a long time before the so-called one-punch laws. And she said to me, now, if women did that every time they were touched on the ass, and her line was, the streets would be littered with dead men. <laughs> it's true, we don't. I mean, and you, you, we would be. You, you, that would be the numbers, you know, reflected by what we have to put up with. I have to be careful here, because I'll maybe get myself into Q&A territory, won't I, talking about <laughs> streets littered with dead men. <laughs> Not written and endorsed by me. Readings will have to take this recording down off the website. Oh, no. Never to be seen again. Now, Australia hasn't had the same number of high-profile Me Too-style cases that we've seen in the United States. Mm. Is it time that our defamation laws were reconsidered? Yes. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not waste time on that. What would you like to see changed? Um, look, I, I, I do think the, um, 
The requirement that you have to meet in order to speak your truth is onerous in this state. And there, there could at the very least be some law reform around that, I think. Um, I mean, truth and public interest really should be enough, it seems to me. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And, and, that's, and that's what keeps us quiet. That's why the stories are de-identified. That's why you think you'll know who some of these blokes are, and you won't, because I changed the details for that reason. And here's the curious thing. I was told by the lawyers, you know, in any case, it's not a defamation. I mean, they may come across as, a, as a, an idiot or a fool or um, a dickhead, but it's not necessarily a defamation. But the threat of it is so profound in this country that, you know, you de-identify. In your Good Weekend piece, you talked about an incident with another man who was colleague who was inappropriate and him quoting what was going on with Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky at the time. Do you look back on the discussion around that period and the way this one young woman's experience became the butt of every joke in the world? And I think we look back on it with fresh eyes now, but do you think it could happen again today in the same way? Or have we gotten at least a little bit more mature in that respect? I don't know about maturity. I think you're dealing with a generations now of younger women who are just far less likely to take the crap. And they've got mobile phones, and they've got servers, and they've got social media, uh, and they use it. You know, I mean, yes, that has its problems too. And I guess if you're going to go down the path of name and shame, you've got to reap the whirlwinds there. And eventually, defamation laws will, you know, overtake those social media platforms as well, and they'll be equally applicable. But um, I, I think, and I like to think, and I hope that. Actually, generationally, that might change. The younger women that I've met just in the process and spoken to of re-releasing this book, it's been so heartening just to hear how much less crap they're prepared to take. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the, that Monica Lewinsky matter, I, I was lucky enough to have a column in The Age at the time of that. And I remember um, there was Maureen Dowd who was calling for Bill Clinton to be impeached over that and seeing it as an outrageous abuse of power what happened to her. I remember writing columns saying exactly the same thing too. There are a couple of others as well um, in America and elsewhere, but the majority of people were just were absolutely piling on this young woman, I remember. And um, I guess what I've learned from reapproaching this text and, and writing your new forward and afterward is that time actually makes sense of truth. And it's only time that's made sense of the, the truth of, of the Ormond College women and what they did. Yeah. And it's time that's made sense of the true Monica Lewinsky story as well. And you've seen that in her when she speaks publicly now, that extraordinary TED talk of hers, and uh, when she comes to Australia and speaks as well. So you don't want to have to wait for, wait for time to bend and to figure it out for you. But it's interesting how it does. You speak about time, and we're talking about a book that's been revisited a generation on. If you look another generation forward and, and you think about the generation of young boys and girls we're raising now, what are the values you think that parents here need to be imprinting, not just on their young girls, but on their young boys, so that we've got a better situation in another 25 years? I think we need to be speaking to our children about bravery and about being brave. And not not in the sense of how we speak about bravery and courage, say, in the inheritance of our 
great defining stories from the Lipoli and the wars and the like. But the bravery to actually step into a situation and to hold someone to account, to call out the behaviour, to be brave with your own feelings and emotions about how you're feeling and to speak those and to own those and to own the consequences of stepping forward as well. I think it's only bravery in the workplace that will actually change the situation for people who are dealing with either endemic uh, discrimination and harassment or occasional harassment. And it's bravery absolutely from our employers and from those wretched HR departments as well to trust us and to trust themselves that we can come together as human beings and have those conversations within the framework of a legislation that makes sense for us and policies that are workable and realistic. Yeah. Um, that's the thing that, that I'm actually focusing on now, to, to be brave. And before we close tonight, I want to finish with one question, which I think is really interesting considering your role as a journalist and such an admired journalist in this country. Believe the Women has become a real rallying cry of the Me Too movement. But journalists don't take things on face value. Yeah. You don't believe someone on face value. Yeah. What do you think we should be doing when women are making accusations or speaking up about something that they allege has happened to them? No, and, um, and, and I, I, I quote um, someone in the, in the book about that, about don't believe. Rowan Farrow. Rowan Farrow, um, who of course um, is Mia Farrow's son and who is one of the um, originators of the entire Me Too reporting. When he was asked about this, Ronan Farris says, no, I don't immediately believe. You can't believe, you investigate. And but that investigation, I think, the idea of investigation loops back to that idea of bravery as well. That's self-investigation, that's interrogating, you know, your own thoughts and your own actions, men and women, being brave, owning your truth and, speak, and, and speaking out. And from the point of view of a journalist, investigating as well. I mean, the, one of the reasons why I was so disappointed by what Helen wrote in her book was that I have great faith in the law, notwithstanding its foibles and its failings and the fact that it's not always going to uh, give us you know, the justice that we desire. But innocent until proven guilty is really important to me. Being able to go to the police and make your statement is important to me. For the police to do their hopefully rigorous and hopefully independent investigation is important to me and that's why I spoke in the book to so many women who are working in law reform in order to make police understand you know how you deal with with our crimes relating to, to to family violence and to sexual violence and make those changes but all of those key investigative principles are very very important to me so no don't believe ask questions investigate and be brave Thank you so much. Everybody, could you please put your hands together?